Great and glorious Father, thank you for this day that you have set apart. Lord, from the beginning of this day to the end, um, we are awake, and we want to be awake not only physically, but in your love and truth and spirit. And so pray now that as I preach your word, that you might awaken something in us. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is something that you are really passionate about? Something you really enjoy? Maybe it's music, sports, food, movies, gardening. Maybe you like to travel or there's a particular place that you love to go. Could be poetry or art or literature. Whatever that is for you, can you remember the moment which your enjoyment began? Maybe it was a series of moments through which your passion developed. I've been a lifelong fan of Georgia Tech football. Where did this come from? Well, for starters, it's a family tradition. My grandfather played football at Georgia Tech. My father went there. I went there. So it's part of the family story, but it's also personal. I've had my own experiences. When I was 10 years old, I went to Georgia Tech football camp. I got a picture with Bobby Ross, the head coach at the time, in front of the Rambling Wreck. The Rambling Wreck is sort of like our second mascot. It's this 1930 uh, Model A Ford car that they drive on to the field. Well, during this camp, my team won out in the competition, and so we got tickets to the opening game for that coming season. Well, that happened to be 1990. I went with my dad. The first game was against NC State, and Georgia Tech took first place that year. Kind of stuff gets in your blood. Ironically, however, my passion for Georgia Tech football outpaces my sanctification. I get a little too passionate about the games the only kind of Georgia Tech game I actually enjoy watching these days is when they score a lot and the other team doesn't score at all. Otherwise, it's just stressful. Why would you want to spend a Saturday being stressed out? Matter of fact, Georgia Tech has uh, the record for the highest scoring game. 1916, they beat Cumberland 222 to zero. That's a game I would have enjoyed. Our passions have context. They come out of our stories. They grow out of memories and relationships. That's why some of our stronger passions are very, very deep. They're part of our identity. They shape who we are. We don't just love fishing for the sake of fishing. We love fishing because our dad or our grandfather taught us how and spent hours doing it with us. We might not just love sweets because we like baking, but because of those memories in the kitchen with our mother or grandmother where they passed on the family secrets. Well, above all of our passions, there is one that is the most core to our humanity. In this passion, we come alive. We become fully human, all that God created us to be. It is the passion to follow Christ, to love him, to learn from him, to live in his constant presence. It is the passion to conform our own lives to his life. If you have not yet discovered this passion, or it has long been forgotten on your life, I pray that God would awaken it today. It's not an accident that you're here listening to this sermon. 
Well, like other passions, the passion to follow Christ doesn't come out of nowhere. It has context. It has story. It is nurtured by memory and relationship. Like some of you, I grew up in the church, and so I didn't have a particular conversion moment. Instead, I have lots of smaller moments, what I like to call like many conversions along the way. I have dozens of people who helped shape my faith in Christ. I remember sitting around my grandmother's breakfast table in Atlanta as she explained to my brother and me what a personal relationship with Jesus was and that we could invite him into our hearts. I remember the youth camp in North Georgia where God's love became real and delightful and I committed my life to him in a deeper way. I remember dozens of youth counselors and mentors and fraternity brothers who poured into me and helped me keep pursuing Christ. I remember times that I fell into sin and how God forgave me and set me on a new path again. Those memories are powerful. Writing to a church whose faith had grown a bit cold, the Apostle John records these words of Jesus in Revelation 2. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, turn around, do the works you did at first. Maybe we're in a similar place this morning. We persist in faith. We're still following Jesus, but it's become a bit rote. Our affections, if we're honest, have dimmed over time. Our love has grown cold. We need to go back. We need to remember our first love. We need to remember those stories and those peoples and those relationships through which our faith was being formed, not as mere nostalgia, but to strengthen our faith now. Because the Jesus who awoke our passion then is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He has not grown cold. His love for you has not diminished one bit. Well, in order to stimulate these memories in us and rekindle our passion, I want to consider the story of a man named Andrew and how he began to follow Christ. Though our stories are each unique, I think there are some similarities and some patterns. And so as we walk through his story, I pray the Lord would help us remember how he called us to himself and how he is still calling us to himself. I want to look at six elements of Andrew's story. And so if you have your Bibles, turn them to John chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 35. The first element, someone pointed Andrew to Jesus. Someone pointed Andrew to Jesus. Look at verses 35 and following. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, the John here is John the Baptist. We considered him last week. His role was to get people ready for the Messiah and to point people to Jesus. If you've seen some of the older art of John the Baptist, he's often depicted pointing, often to a lamb, the lamb of God. 
But John also had disciples, people who were attaching themselves to him and following his teaching. He didn't seem to resist that. He seemed to welcome that. But in this passage, we see this beautiful moment of humility. John points his own disciples to Jesus. All along, he's been saying, it's, it's not about me. It's about him. And two of his disciples hear his words and begin to follow Jesus. Andrew was one of these. They suspect that the other one was John, the beloved disciple who's writing the book down. He often cryptically kind of covers up his identity. If we look back in our stories, we can remember those people who pointed us to Jesus. Maybe it was our parents who brought us to church and had us baptized. That was an act of faithfulness on their part. And even if we look at our parents' faith and say, yeah, but it wasn't very strong and my my church experience wasn't the best, God was still at work because the church is the body of Christ. To bring someone to church is to bring them to Jesus. Maybe it was someone else, a friend, a colleague, college roommate, a spouse, even our own children. God can use anyone. Do you remember those people in your life? Can you recall them now? Can you quietly just offer up thanksgiving to God for how he brought people that pointed you to Jesus? It's not an accident. Through these people, God was working to draw you into relationship with himself. He was beginning that early development of passion and desire for Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're just beginning to explore Jesus. Is there someone in your life that's pointing you to him? Will you let them? They might not be doing it perfectly. They might get on your nerves sometimes. But they're trying to point you to the greatest treasure your heart can ever find. You may have doubts, questions, objections. That's fine. You actually don't need to get over all of those before you come to Jesus. Even mature Christians have questions and doubts and struggles. That's actually part of what it means to follow Jesus is to keep asking those kings and bringing them to him and saying, yes, but what about this, Jesus? Andrew has this great start to his relationship with Jesus, but he doesn't have a clue what he's signing up for. A moment or two later in this passage, he's going to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't even know what that means, as we'll come to discover as the Gospels go on. He simply took the advice of John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus and he said, yeah, I'll check that out. I'll follow him. Second element, Andrew's story, was that he had to leave something behind in order to follow Jesus. In his case, he had to leave behind John the Baptist, was following John the Baptist, now he's going to start following Jesus. We also learn in the other Gospels that Andrew was a fisherman. And so he had to leave behind his nets, his occupation, his way of life at least in part. Jesus was going to make him a different type of fisherman, literally a fisher of men. We can't follow Jesus without leaving something behind. That's why his call to us is repent and believe. Now, the repent can refer to sin in our lives. We have to leave behind uh, patterns of sin, but it's not always just about sin. Repentance just means turn around. It means to reorient your life around the new king, the new administration that's come into power, Jesus. So when that happens, inevitably other things have to get left out. Can you remember a time in your walk that you had to leave something behind as you began to follow Christ? 
Maybe it was a way of thinking, a philosophy, even a religion. John the Baptist was hugely important. He pointed people to Jesus, but he didn't get the whole picture. And so if Andrew had said, no thanks, John, I'm not interested. I'm just going to stick with you, not Jesus, he would have missed something. He would have missed out entirely, in fact. He had to leave it behind. We all have ways of making sense of our lives, especially the big things in life. Even if you don't think you do, you do. Even if your answer is, I'm going to deny that. We all have to wrestle with questions about meaning and purpose. What am I here for? What am I doing? Why am I spending the life the way I'm spending my life? What about happiness? How am I pursuing that? What about love? What does that do? What about relationships? What about death? We all know that death's a reality. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with your mortality? When we start to follow Christ, we have to abandon. We have to leave behind old ways of thinking as we learn new ways of thinking from him. Sometimes it's something a little bit more tangible, like a job prospect, maybe a chance to make a lot of money. Ran into a friend of mine uh, yesterday. He is a, a home builder here in Charlotte. He um, makes some really beautiful homes. And I said, how's the home building business? He goes, actually, I'm getting out of it. I said, oh, really? What? Tell me about that. He's like, I'm, I want to go into Christian ministry. Oh, wow. And he proceeded to tell me that there's going to be a little bit of a budget shift in his family. I thought, yeah, there probably will be. You got to leave some things behind sometimes. Sometimes he calls us to leave behind a person. Maybe that's a relationship that's unhealthy. Maybe it's a family member. Jesus spoke to this. And we sometimes have to leave behind even those closest ties that we have. Paisley and I, uh, many years ago, spent some time in Lebanon. And while we were there, we met and, and had some meals with this delightful Christian man. But he was formerly a Muslim. And when he converted to Christianity, his family not only disowned him, I think there was like a death mark on his head that he couldn't even go back to that place in the city. And so he, he kind of lived alone in this room, in this Christian community. He had to leave something behind when he chose to follow Jesus. At the time, when God calls us to leave something behind, it can be incredibly difficult. Some people don't even follow Jesus because of the things that they might have to leave behind. It can feel more than just, oh, I have to give up sweets. It could be really something core to our identity is being removed. And we might wonder, who will I be? How will I function if, if that thing gets left behind? It's quite scary. But for those of us who've walked with Christ, can you look back now? Can you recall some of those things that you had to leave behind? Are you the poorer for it? Or has God still enriched and carried your life? Those things can be really difficult. But in time, I think they actually become some of the sweetest memories of how we decided to trust Jesus and let him take care of that part of our life. And we saw how faith was deepened. We saw how God really is sovereign. He really, really does have a plan. We need to remember those times because giving up something for Jesus isn't just, oh yeah, I did that back in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s. No, that's an ongoing part of following Christ. And so we need to remember how he was faithful then that we might continue to walk in that place of giving things to him over and over and over. The third element we see in Andrew's story is how he began to seek out Jesus, take those steps towards Jesus. He had left John the Baptist and he and this other disciple now began to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus notices them following him and they start a dialogue. Those little initial steps of faith are critical. We have to 
make a step. We have to make a move. There's little things that we do. Maybe back then for you it was, well, I, I finally decided to try the Bible study that friend had been asking me to. Or I decided to visit church. Or I wanted to, to read my Bible for the first time or the first time in a long time and start saying some prayers at night. When I was 12, my mother came to me, and as I recall, it was kind of out of the blue, and said, hey, do you want to go to this summer youth camp? It wasn't even the church that we were going to. I don't remember how the connection was. Maybe a friend was going, and I decided to go. I don't remember my passion being particularly strong. I just, sixth grader or whatever age, sure, yeah, I'll go. It was a huge moment. That youth camp and that youth group became formational in my life where I learned to love Jesus. Can you remember some moments, some initial steps that you took towards Jesus? What that felt like? Again, it doesn't have to be a conversion thing. It could have been you're already a Christian, you're growing up in the church, but those steps that you took towards him. Again, some of you might be here today and this is a step. Just come into church. And I pray the Lord would bless it. So these steps we take are important and yet at some point in our relationship with Christ, we discover something wonderful. All along, we thought we were seeking him, but then we learned that long before, he was seeking us. Andrew would later hear Jesus say these words, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The only reason we are pursuing Christ is that Christ first pursued us and knew us and loved us. He's always been seeking us in everything that we've done. And I think as we discover that, it gives us this whole new set of glasses to put on and to see our relationship with the Lord. All along, you were there. All along, in that moment, in that moment, in that moment, you've been there. You've been loving me. You've been drawing me to yourself. It could reignite our passion for him because our interest, our desire might wane, but his never does. Today, if your passion for Christ is low, rest assured, his passion for you has never changed. He loves you now as he always has. Yes, keep seeking him, but know that he is always seeking you. Fourth element. Jesus probes Andrew's heart with a question. Jesus probes Andrew's heart with a question. Verse 38. Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Well, it seems like a simple question. It's really quite profound. I don't think it's an accident that John places this question at the beginning of the gospel. It's the first thing that Jesus says in the whole book. You got a red letter Bible? It's the first red letters that you see. Now, Jesus is really fond of asking these probing questions. He always um, knows the answer, but he's doing it for us. He's doing it to help us take a deeper look inside. Recall Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. You have those two disciples. They're down. They're dejected. The crucifixion has happened. The resurrection has not. They're not sure what's going on. Jesus shows up to them, walks along with them, and they say, he says to them this question, well, what things? Basically he's saying, well, why are you sad? Tell me about it. And they're, you don't know what's happened? Of course he knows what happened. I'm the one that died. I'm the one that resurrected. But what's he doing? He's taking them into their pain. He's taking them into the sadness. Why? So that that place he can reveal himself as the risen and resurrected Christ. 
Jesus asked these questions to take us in to our hearts. So why at the beginning of discipleship does Jesus ask this question, what are you seeking? Because that's a question of desire. You could translate it, what do you want? What are you after? Human beings are not just thinking creatures. We are creatures filled with love and desire and passions. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, James Smith writes, we are essentially and ultimately desiring animals, which is to say that we are essentially and ultimately lovers. To be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. I think that's why Jesus wrote what he wrote in Revelation 2 to the church at Ephesus. You've forgotten your first love. You've abandoned that. You're not becoming who you are anymore if you forget that you're a lover. Discipleship is never just about thinking the right thoughts. It's about love and passion and pursuit. And yes, thinking those along the right thoughts. But right from the beginning, Jesus is going to take us into our desires. Moral and religious conformity will never suffice in following the God-man of Nazareth. That's not the kind of God that he is. That's not the kind of God that Yahweh was and is. He wants your heart. Does he have it? Does he have it today, friends? The new covenant he's making in his blood is a new covenant about the heart. He's going to do something in us at the level of our will and desires. If we follow him, he begins to remake us from the inside out. And he's got to cut some things away in that process, but the cutting is not going to be like the external circumcision but the circumcision of the heart, which Kyle spoke about a few weeks ago. That's where it begins. I don't know about you, but I, I need to hear this word because I find I too often am like the Ephesian Christians. I'm dutiful. I'm trying to be persistent in faith. I'm trying to do the right thing, to be faithful. I'm trying to have the right teaching and to point out the wrong teaching. I'm trying to persist in faith where there's a lot of resistance to compromise. But do we love, lose our first love in that process? I think we do. So often I think something gets lost so Jesus goes on asking us this question, even if we've been lifelong followers. What are you seeking? What are you desiring? Where is your heart today? He wants to take us into that place where the seat of the emotions and the will and the character of a human being into the heart. That's the place from which we must follow him if we're going to follow him at all. And he knows, friends. He knows we get distracted. He knows we get discouraged. He knows we get tired. And so he offers us grace. This isn't a condemnation. How dare you not be passionate? We can't even like rouse our passions if we wanted to. It's a gift. The Holy Spirit has to come and to bring that back up from the inside. But know that the Lord goes on. He's not gonna leave us in a place of cold love and passion. He wants to stir it up in us again and again and again. So will you let him? Will you be honest enough to let him ask you that probing question? The fifth element in Andrew's story is Jesus' invitation. But before the invitation, there's another question. In response to his great question, that discipleship question, what are you seeking? The disciples respond with this question, where are you staying? It's almost like they're a bit caught off guard, like they didn't know what Jesus was going to say, and so they're like, uh, 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 uh where, where are you staying tonight? 
It also could be a way of saying, well, we want to spend more time with you. So it's kind of like inviting themselves over, like, hey, can we, can we come spend the night with you or hang out with you tonight and learn a little bit more about you? Where are you staying? Well, it turns out the disciples were asking a whole lot more than they realized. They stumbled onto another keyed question of discipleship. In John's gospel, sometimes we read something and we have it at face value, but it also has a deeper meaning. So for example, later in John, uh, he notes that when Judas left the Last Supper, it was night. Now on one level, he's just giving us a historical detail. It was nighttime when Judas went out, but he's doing more than that. He's also telling us it was the hour when darkness reigned, when Judas betrayed the Son of Man. So when you're reading John's gospel, you kind of have to have this other uh, eye for these kind of things. What's going on here with the disciples' question? On the surface, it's simply a request to see where Jesus is staying that night and perhaps to get to spend some more time with him. But in a deeper way, it's not just about his physical address. To see where Jesus is staying, which is the word abiding, is to discover that he abides in the Father. That's his address. And that's a huge theme throughout John, is this close relationship between the Father and the Son. Just a few verses earlier, chapter 1, verse 18, we learn that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. This is a way of saying he's in close relationship with the Father, and it's out of that that he comes to us. In John 14, we learn that Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. The disciples think they're just asking where Jesus is staying the night. But as they begin to follow him, they discover a profound answer to their innocent question. Jesus abides in the Father. Well, in response to their question, where are you staying? Jesus gives the great invitation of discipleship. Come and see, or come and you will see. The preacher Daryl Johnson notes that it's not see and come. You can't flip the order. You can only see by first coming closer. You can't follow Jesus at a distance. John Calvin notes that it's not enough to merely sniff at the gospel from a distance. You have to draw near. But if you do, you will see. You will see not only where he abides in the Father, but you will also discover that you can abide there too. John 15 is a favorite chapter of many if you've read it and studied it. It's where Jesus used that wonderful vine analogy. He tells us that we have to abide in him like a branch on a vine just as he abides in the Father. So when we start following Jesus, turns out we get the same address. We are abiding in the Son and in the Father and they're abiding in us by the Spirit. They take up residence in us. They make their home in us. So it turns out that their simple question to open up the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, it is to abide in him. It is to live where he lives. And that's what he invites us to with this great invitation, come and see. Six and final element in Andrew's story, an important one, and we'll end with this. He brings somebody else to Jesus. He brings somebody else to Jesus. Has anyone ever heard of Albert McMakin? Anybody? Nobody's heard of Albert McMakin. Has anyone ever heard of Billy Graham? Heard of Billy Graham. Albert McMakin was a friend of Billy's. 
It was Albert who convinced Billy to come to hear the evangelist Mordecai Ham here in Charlotte, where Billy would give his life to Christ. He used a great evangelism tactic. He, he told Billy that he could drive the dairy truck. And he said, okay, well, I want to drive the dairy truck. And so he went to hear the evangelist. After spending some time with Jesus, Andrew is now convinced that he has found the Messiah. He's had this transformational encounter with him. And the first thing he does the next day is he goes and he finds his brother. Because when you found Jesus, you can't say, oh, that's nice. You just kind of follow him quietly and privately. No, you go out and you say, I got to find someone. I got to find someone I love to tell that I found the Messiah. And that's that simple little line. And he brought his brother to Jesus. Turns out Jesus had big plans for Andrew's brother. Gives him a new name, Peter. Plays a major role in the church. On the contrary, we don't, don't hear a whole lot more about Andrew. Shows up a couple times in the Gospels. And then we learn from tradition that he, he may have gone east, preaching the gospel as far as Ukraine. He's best remembered for bringing his brother to Jesus. It's the most important thing that he ever did. If you've had a family member, sister or brother, point you to Jesus, that might mean a lot to you. It does to me because it's some very key moments in my faith. My brother, my blood brother pointed me to Jesus. Sometimes we forget this part of discipleship of bringing others to Jesus. Earlier in our walk, we may have been enthusiastic about it. We may have been annoying about it. But it seems that the more we mature, that we somehow don't mature in our practice of personal evangelism and calling others to share the faith. Perhaps that has to do with our own passion and love growing cold. Or perhaps it's because we're intimidated. We know that we're not an Apostle Peter or a Billy Graham, and that's true. There's probably none of us in this room that are that. But every single one of us can be an Albert McMakin. Every single one of us can be an Andrew. It may be the most important thing we ever do. If there's somebody in your life right now for whom God is calling you to be Andrew or Albert. Coming full circle back to our first point, God wants to use you to be the person to point someone to him, thereby awakening their passion and their desire for following Christ. You don't have to be Andrew to everyone you meet or everyone you know, but if you ask God, I bet he will begin to show you and give you some people of peace, some people who are open to your life and your message, and to them you can be Andrew. And that's what I love about this process of discipleship is that it continues. It's not self-contained. Our passion for Christ was never designed to be held inside of us. It's designed to spill over so that it repeats itself again and again and again as new people awaken their desire and passion for Jesus. Would you pray with me?